Strange Studies of Strange Stories. There is something inherently comforting about the first person past tense. It conjures up visions of some desk-bound narrator puffing contemplatively upon a pipe amid the safety of his study, lost in tranquil recollection, seasoned but essentially unscathed by whatever experience he's about to relate. It's a tense that says, I am here to tell the tale. I lived through it. The description, in my own case, is perfectly accurate, as far as it goes. I am indeed seated in a kind of study, a small den, actually, but lined with bookshelves on one side, below a view of Manhattan painted many years ago, from memory by my sister. My desk is a folding bridge table that once belonged to her. Before me, the electric typewriter, though somewhat precariously supported, hums soothingly, and from the window behind me comes the familiar drone of the old air conditioner, waging its lonely battle against the tropic night. Beyond it, in the darkness outside, the small night noises are doubtless just as reassuring. Wind in the palm trees, the mindless chant of crickets, the muffled chatter of a neighbor's TV, an occasional car bound for the highway, shifting gears as it speeds past the house. If somebody's recounting what happened to them in the past tense, that means they have lived to tell the tale, mm. unless they are, of course, narrating the story from after being alive. <laughs> Welcome to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. <laughs> I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I don't know. And I'm Chris Lackey. <laughs> We're covering Black Man with a Horn by Ted Klein. He is the only living author we've ever covered on the show. That we know of. There, there are rumors that Bram Stoker is alive and well in Palm Springs. I've never heard that rumor. I, I saw a guy I swear it was Bram Stoker. <laughs> he had a beard. Oh, okay. Obviously it was him. I looked over his shoulder and he was writing Dracula, so I'm pretty sure it was it him. Must have been him. But yes, we covered Ted Klein's novella, The Events at Porath Farm, back on episodes 366 through 368 of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast with Ken Height as a guest. And uh, we've linked out to those in our show notes. And we're making this exception again because Eric Peabody of Viking Guitar Productions has just released a full reading of the events at Porth Farm. And he will be reading for us all month. Yes, as many of you heard in our announcement about it last week, our audio engineer, and as you said, today's reader, Eric, is the host of a podcast called Horror Hill, which is a weekly anthology show covering scary stories sourced from some of the internet's finest independent authors. Mm. Eric got Ted Klein's permission to do the story for the show, a full narration of the events at Porth Farm. It's the first time that the story has been officially adapted to audio, and this is a great and free way to experience it. Uh, the first episode aired last week, and the second half releases today, I believe, the 10th. Mm -hmm. You can find them at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, and also just by searching Horror Hill on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, we will link out as well to them in the show notes. We aren't going to go into too much detail on Ted Klein's bio, but we can rehash it a little. Born Theodore Donald Klein in 1947 in New York City, he went to Brown University, wrote his honors thesis on H.P. Lovecraft, and graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1969. 1947, that means he was born 100 years after Bram Stoker. Oh, Even more wow. surprising that they're both still alive. <laughs> In 1975, Klein and others created the World Fantasy Convention in Providence. The events at Porth Farm was nominated for Best Short 
at the convention. Well-deserved. He was the editor of the Twilight Zone magazine from its creation in 1971 until 1985. The E in T.E.D. Klein stands for Ebon, the name of Clark Ashton Smith's wizard. And he liked the idea of having initials that also spelt out his name. Yes, in all caps. You know, yes. he wants the reader to feel like he's screaming his first name at them. It's it's like when you hear a loud noise you're not expecting, it scares you. He's actually creating a jump scare. You think, oh, oh this book looks good. Who's the author? Ted Klein. Oh, oh my God. Whoa, he already got you. Woo. He scared you before you even opened to the first page. This story was first published in good old Ramsey Campbell's New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos by Arkham House back in 1980. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was still, you said that uh, he named himself Ebon or used the the E stands for Ebon, the name of Clark Ashton Smith's wizard. It just made it sound like that's his dog or something like he's got a wizard around the house. Does things for him here and there. Anyway, friend of the show, S.T. Joshi wrote of Ted Klein in close to 25 years of writing. Klein has only two books and a handful of scattered tales to his credit. And yet his achievement towers gigantically over that of his more prolific contemporaries. Mm-hmm. I also have a pull quote from some of Klein's prolific contemporaries that says, you, Joshi. <laughs> Whoa. A- after we read Borth Farm, I liked it so much that I immediately tracked down and purchased a paperback copy of The Ceremonies, mm-hmm. which was an expansion of that story to full yeah. novel length. Got it on the shelf now. But what I also need to get is Klein's collection of stories called Dark Gods, yes. which today's tale, Black Man with a Horn, is in among some other reputed gems. Yeah. Uh, however, I did have the story in the Book of Cthulhu anthology edited by our friend Rossi Lockhart. And I got it in the Cthulhu 2000 anthology, which was edited by Jim Turner. So there are lots of places to buy it. It's a well-known Cthulhu mythos story, and it deserves the attention. So uh, thank you to everybody who suggested it over the years. I really had a good time reading it. Um, we've obviously read a lot of Cthulhu mythos stories in those years that we've been doing the show. Some are imitations of Lovecraft, like Derleth's work or early Robert Block whereas others explore the mythos trappings within their own style and voice, like Michael Shea or Ted Klein. And I liked this story a lot because Klein is just an excellent writer, full stop. Mm-hmm. It didn't even need the Lovecraft affectations, but I think Lovecraft would have coveted the central mystery or the implication that Klein is making in this story of the horrible yeah. thing that's actually happening. It's a device that would have uh, horrified Lovecraft and also therefore fascinated him. So it, it fits right in with his body of work, if you like that you'll like this but black man with a horn is also a story that's aware of being a cthulhu mythos story it's very meta you might say Mm. Uh, it's aware of who you likely are as the reader it's aware of lovecraft fandom and the controversies and the tropes and it's kind of funny in that regard as well yeah so we're going to take a few episodes to cover it let's just jump right in the story begins with a quote yes it says the black words obscured by postmark was fascinating must get a snapshot of him hp lovecraft postcard to e hoffman price 723-1934. The word omitted is kitten. Okay. And I think it was made to have us think that he's saying some kind of racist stuff. Uh, but this time, Lovecraft actually wasn't. It does invoke the racial issues with Lovecraft. And remember, this story came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. So those issues aren't some symptom of the modern era. This has been around for a long time. Even if it is actually about a black kitten in the real quote, and he's not being racist, we do know what the name of Lovecraft's Black Kitten was. Yes. Which also appears in his story Rats in the Walls. That touches on that idea of repulsion slash fascination, which I think is a central feature of Lovecraft's work. You know, he hates the cold, so he writes cool air. Hates seafood, so he writes about a seafood-faced god waking up in the ocean. Similarly, it's really odd to hate a race of people and then name your beloved cat after them. 
it's a weird thing to do psychologically. And the selection of that quote, it also is cool because it kind of parodies how August Erlath created quote unquote Lovecraft stories. Right, right. By taking just some offhand comment or journal entry and crafting a whole tale out of it, which is about to happen here. Mm-hmm. And additionally, the fact that it's a postcard to E. Hoffman Price invokes that idea of the Lovecraft circle, that there's a small group of correspondents who go on to be his apostles, Robert Block, Derleth, Clark Ashton Smith, E. Hoffman Price, etc. So this epigraph is doing a lot of work before I've even yeah. gotten into the first paragraph. Now, our protagonist and narrator seems to be specifically based on Frank Belknap Long from that same Lovecraft circle. Yeah, we've covered many of Frank Belknap Long's stories on HP Podcraft. We did The Ocean Leech, The Man from Time, The Space Eaters, The Hounds of Tindalos. Really cool stories, mythos stories, pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. We're going to do another story by him after we finish this one. It's called The Creeper in Darkness. Everybody else who is writing a title right now, just give up, put down your pens. You cannot do better than The Creeper in Darkness. And this story's protagonist is a Frank Belknap Long type. It says that in the Wikipedia entry for the story. And the annotation for that fact is from the book Icons of Horror and the Supernatural, edited by S.T. Joshi from Mm. 2006. It's a collection of essays on types of horror, and Joshi has an essay in there on the Cthulhu mythos. So maybe that's where that's stated. If anybody's read this collection, it's two volumes. It says an encyclopedia of our worst nightmares. Sounds like something I'd like to have. If you have read it, let us know if that's where it says it in that essay. I'm not entirely sure. The narrator is an aged writer. He's in his late 70s, making this novel take place in the late 70s, the late 1970s, yeah, maybe even 1980 when the story was published. Belknap Long was born in 1901, so that lines up. He was friends with Lovecraft, but, you know, only 10 years younger than him. He wasn't a teenager like Robert Block. The narrator has some casual racism that you would expect to find in most 70-plus white dudes from the 1970s, but I think Klein is leading into this, making it known the character thinks this way and it's not the author oh definitely it's like this isn't a story we have to apologize for it's very aware of how dumb this stuff is and it's kind Mm -hmm. of making using it for the very accurate characterization of somebody from that generation this narrator starts off the story by talking about how he loves the first person past tense a lot of lovecraft stories and just a lot of the stories that we've covered over the years are like this a narrator is telling you about something that has happened to them I'm here to tell the tale. I've lived through it. It makes it personal. It gives it a little bit of that verisimilitude. The narrator's writing this all down because he thinks that he's going to be dead soon. Another common trope in these stories. But like in Porth Farm, the fictional character has read all the same stories we have. Yeah. And the character knows that in those Lovecraft stories, even though that past tense is comforting because they've lived through something, the tense often changes at the end, too, to present tense, you know? So... Mm -hmm. That's my story. My grandfather, it turns out, was married to a bat from space. And now I'm here in this room writing about it. I'm I'm a little worried that there's a gang of space bats after me. Hey, what's that fluttering at the window? That strange eking. Oh, no, it's the space dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Which is why it says the description in my own case is perfectly accurate as far as it goes. Right. That tense change could happen to him. Mm -hmm. Now, he tells us about where he's writing from his sister's bungalow in Florida. He's a New Yorker, so how did he end up here? What kind of weird tale happens in Florida? (laughs) Well, weird tales happen every day in Florida. (laughs) We've covered some fictional stories set there as well. But remember, Lovecraft made a visit to R.H. Barlow in Florida in 1934. I do. Lovecraft Mm -hmm. was 43, and when he arrived, he discovered Barlow was 16. (laughs) We talked about that on the episode for the Night Ocean, I think, Uh the Barlow Lovecraft story. Nevertheless, he stayed there with a kid and his mother for around seven weeks. 
and wrote a lot about the experience. There's actually a really good episode of Voluminous all about that, that I can direct folks to in the show notes. Sean Brandy and Andrew Lehman's show Voluminous. I read in a New Yorker article that Lovecraft found the Florida climate stimulating. I feel like a new person, as spry as a youth, he wrote to a friend in California. I go hatless and coatless. (laughs) (laughs) The narrator points out that even though he's writing a first-person past tense story, he's not sure if the story is actually over. And neither will the reader be, because if he dies, he won't be able to write anymore, and the mystery will have to endure. He mentions a sundial in the front yard that annoys him. It has a cloy saying on it, grow old along with me. Now, I've never heard this before, but the whole phrase is grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. But his sundial says grow old along with me. The best is yet to come. Uh. It's a stupid sentiment. And it it's one that doesn't even rhyme. And I think it's a child's error right like it's his nephew that wrote this on here and it's Mm -hmm. funny that he's mad about it even though it's it's a mistake a child made (laughs) he writes whether the experience is really over now no one can say and if as i suspect the final chapter is yet to be enacted then the notion of my living through it will seem a pathetic conceit yet i can't say i find the thought of my own death particularly disturbing and then he goes on to write about that sundial that he has grown old with it and my life hardly seems to have mattered in the scheme of things Surely its end cannot matter much either. Ah, Howard, you would have understood. An invocation of that cosmic horror of our own insignificance. Mm -hmm. And that last sentence lets you know that this is somebody who was a friend of Lovecraft, whom he calls Howard, not just a colleague. This was his pal. Chapter two begins. Our narrator is on a plane. He's flying from Heathrow, London, to New York. He's got vomit on his suit and sauce on his pants cuff, and the plane is lurching around. The author says that even though the ending of the story will doubtless be unhappy, the beginning is kind of comical with all of these spills and pratfalls and and goofy characters. Yes, and he throws us right in the middle of it, and then he backtracks. Earlier, when boarding the plane, he was jostled by a team of rowdy rugby players, which caused him to step in a Chinaman's dinner, which was being kept in a box on the floor by the man's seat. Stepping on the box made a mess and the narrator got some kind of duck sauce on his shoe and pants cuff. He thinks that's what it may be. It's thick and syrupy. And you know, particularly with American Chinese food, the sauces are so thick like that. I spilled some Mm. sweet and sour sauce on the back seat of my 1990 Nissan Sentra and it never came out, (laughs) never. I've never eaten real food in China, and I think that American Chinese food is really different from what I've heard. Yeah, it's very and different. I, it's, it's a lot sweeter, too. They put a lot more sugar and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the narrator also saw this big white guy with a super dark beard carrying an Air Malay bag. And he's got this very aggro vibe and seems to put everybody off. A tall, beefy Caucasian who looked like some heavy from the silent era. His head bobbing near the ceiling like a gas balloon. It also says that he gets the smell of treacle in the man's wake. And when we read Robert Block's Sweets to the Sweet a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. he used the word treacle a lot. The lawyer was talking about sweet-talking the woman Mm -hmm. and pouring out more treacle. And I had to look it up then to make sure I knew what he meant. It's a thick, sticky, dark syrup made from partly refined sugar. Molasses. Basically, he's got that duck sauce on him that it might be like treacle, but he also smells it as if it's on this agro Caucasian guy. And and it also mentions here that Chinese traveler's dinner is being stored in a black cardboard hat box, which is kind of Mm. odd. At first, I imagine one of those takeout containers, but it's it's in a hat box. So is it food? Mm. Hmm. Strangely, the Chinese man apologizes to the narrator. 
I guess for having his stuff on the floor. And the narrator describes the man as a Charlie Chan looking fellow. <laughs> He's not even as kind as that. He says he just calls him a bloated little Charlie Chan. Uh, well, so it's yeah. much more of an invective or appellation than a description or comparison. You know? <laughs> yeah. Did you know Charlie Chan was based on a real guy? No. Chang Apana, a Chinese Hawaiian man who was part of the Honolulu Police Department as a detective from 1898 to 1932. Oh, wow. And Charlie Chan was written by Earl Der Biggers, who was pushing against all that yellow peril stuff that was coming out. Right, like Fu Manchu, who's so exactly. evil. This would be a positive Asian stereotype, I guess. He was always played by white actors in the movies. In fact, when you said he was based on a real guy, I thought, oh, was it a white guy pretending to be Chinese? Because I think it was like a Swedish guy that played Charlie Chan. Yeah. For a yeah, long they time. They always had white guys. It was, yeah. It's terrible. But he was smart and benevolent and cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good job there. <laughs> the narrator was seated next to an over-friendly older woman about his age. During the flight, they hit some turbulence and this upset the woman's stomach and she threw up, getting a fair amount of it on the narrator. So the story is operating on the level of really grossing me out at this point. <laughs> the woman keeps talking to him. Her breath is terrible and he's trying to be polite, but he's had enough of her and Ugh. makes his way to the toilet to clean up. He looks at himself in the mirror and he thinks, a bald, harmless-looking old baggage with stooped shoulders and a damp suit. So different from the self-confident young fellow in the photo captioned HPL and Disciple. Personally, turning 50, I've been thinking about the hopefully slow decline of the quality of life. And I'm not ready to throw in the towel yet, but... <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> there are benefits. I just want to preface that before, you know, all these things I'm going to say. I'm loving life. Life's great. Yeah, 50 is yeah. awesome. But Absolutely. there are benefits with getting older, but also drawbacks. And at some point, those drawbacks will outweigh those benefits. And I often wonder, when will that time come? Yeah. Has it already come? And I just don't know it yet. <laughs> Mortality and insignificance ring out loudly, I think, in cosmic horror. And I feel like Klein is touching on that here. Oh, yeah. Well, he's not just touching on it. He's grabbing it by the neck and choking it. I mean, this is really... And by the way, if you listen to this show in 10 years, you will out loud say, shut up. You were so young and fresh. This narrator is thinking about change as well. You know, he thinks flying is even kind of still a novelty for him because of his age, mm -hmm. even though it's been around for a long time. It says my friend Howard, of course, as I'd reminded audiences earlier in the week, used to say he'd hate to see aeroplanes come into common commercial use since they merely add to the goddamn useless speeding up of an already overspeeded life. He had dismissed them as devices for the amusement of a gentleman. But then he'd only been up once in the 20s, a brief $3.50 flight above Buzzards Bay, and, and adds he was dead and therefore to be pitied, yet even in death he had triumphed over me. <laughs> All this business about our insignificance goes out the window as he compares his own career and accomplishments to Lovecraft's. He's got a bunch of anger, you know, you can mm -hmm. sense, because his only significance is not really as a writer, but as a writer who knew Lovecraft and who writes in that style, mm -hmm. who was in a photo of him once. And in his pocket, he's got a recent anthology in which one of his early tales has been published. It's called Goose Pimples, 13 Cosmic Chillers in the Lovecraft Tradition. <laughs> and on the back, Listed among a dozen other writers whose names he says I barely recognized, I was described as a disciple. Ouch. But then also being relegated to your buddy's disciple just because you're a bit younger can sting, obviously. Yeah. So this was what I'd been reduced to. A lifetime's work shrugged off by some blurb writer as worthy of the master himself. 
the creations of my brain dismissed as mere pastiche. My meticulously wrought fiction, once singled out for such elaborate praise, was now simply, as if this were commendation enough, Lovecraftian. Howard, your triumph was complete the moment your name became an adjective. I'd suspected it for years, of course, but only with the past week's conference had I been forced to acknowledge the fact that what mattered to the present generation was not my own body of work, but rather my association with Lovecraft. And even this was demeaned. After years of friendship and support, to be labeled, simply because I'd been younger, a mere disciple. It seemed too cruel a joke. He carries around a bit of paper from the conference that has his bio on it, and it says, a member of the Lovecraft Circle, New York educator, and author of the celebrated collection Beyond the Garve. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I could almost hear you chuckling, Howard. From where else? Beyond the Garve. He called this the crowning indignity to be immortalized by a misprint. <laughs> I think he's just come from this convention. It's like he's coming from Necronomicon, basically, whatever sure, the version yeah. of it would be in uh -huh. 1980 in, in England. And it's that repulsion-attraction dichotomy being presented again for a group of writers focused on insignificance and, you know, human insignificance in the universe. This guy actually seems pretty obsessed with his own significance. Yeah. But I think everybody struggles with this. You want to be the hero rather than the background. You would hate to be remembered as an associate of somebody else. Oh, yeah. Hey, we did a Lovecraft show for a long time, so I hate to say it, but I, I can relate. Sure. You know, I don't want to be thought of as a popularizer of somebody else's work. I want to do my own thing. And after yeah. a while, you go, oh, man, this is how I'm remembered, just in my association with this guy. And that's a hard pill to swallow, you know. It might be why you're attracted to the human beings are all insignificant, because it eases the pain of that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> ah, none of it matters anyway. What am I so upset True. about? Once he gets out of the toilet, he asks the flight attendant if he can change seats, and she sits him next to this beardy guy. Beardy guy's snoozing, and when the narrator gets a good look at him, he can see that this guy is wearing a fake beard. <laughs> and he looks closer, the beardy guy, his eyes just pop open and startles the narrator. Yeah. The guy croaks out quietly, not here, not here, the narrator thinks, what the hell is he talking about? They sit in silence for a while until he shrinks back into the seat and says to himself, don't do it to me here. <laughs> Stop. So when the narrator says the story begins in comic fashion, he is not kidding because <laughs> a fake beard is one of the things in life that's just funny all on its own. You don't need to say anything about it. Just present it. I see a fake beard. I'm already laughing. Yep. And then the guy whispers, don't do it to me here. <laughs> What's he talking about? Whoa. Now I kind of want to do it, whatever he's talking about. I do want to do it here. Now, the narrator obviously thinks that this guy is a crazy person, and Beardy Guy must see this on his face and change his gears. He apologizes, and he said, oh, he must have been having a bad dream. He chuckles and says in a Tennessee accent, I better lay off the Kickapoo juice. <laughs> the Kickapoo are Native American people who live around the Great Lakes region. And in fact, I first heard of the Kickapoo when I was traveling to Wisconsin on vacation when I was six or seven. I have to admit, I was culturally insensitive, and I giggled about it because it sounded like you're kicking poo. That yeah. was funny to me as a child. Klein's cracking me up. He's got a fake beard in here. <laughs> the funniest Native American tribe name. But, of, I mean, that's, of course, racist, too, because it's Native Americans and alcohol. Yeah. Oh, it's, right. The Kickapoo you know, Juice. Yeah, you, that's, yeah, Kickapoo Juice is a... Yeah, because uh, the protagonist is like, oh, I haven't heard that one for a while. Beardy Man says that I've been away for a while. 
the narrator says, oh yeah, Malaya. And the bearded guy looks horrified. How did you know? And the narrator says, uh, it's on your bag that you were carrying earlier when you almost knocked me down. And you got a tag hanging off your beard that says it's from the Malay novelty shop. <laughs> Beardy guy is relieved and then apologetic. And he says he was rude because he's worried that somebody's following him. So the narrator goes, oh, so that's what's up with the fake beard. And he sheepishly says, yeah, it's a cheap disguise. The narrator asks, are you a spy? But fake beard says, no, I used to be a missionary. Up until yesterday. Is there a fake beard in Charles Dexter Ward, the story, or am I just remembering The Resurrected? Oh, man. I might have conflated the two. I want to say yes, but it might have just been in the movie. A fake beard is Lovecraftian, if it was in the story. (laughs) If not, then Klein brought that to the table. Now we get into chapter three. We get this man's tale. The narrator says that once fake beard was chatting, he didn't seem hunted at all. (laughs) Is the beard kind of moving in one big piece while he's talking? I think it is. (laughs) The narrator asks him if he stole some native's treasure or hooked up with some chief's daughter, but no, nothing so interesting. He was in a place called Nagiri Sembalan, south of of Kuala Lumpur. Nagiri Sembalan is a real place. It's a state of Malaysia. They have archaeological records saying that people lived there at least 12,000 years ago. Hmm. Of course, in the mid-19th century, the Brits came in and made life miserable for people there. Malaysia was occupied by the Japanese during World War II, but after the war, Nagiri Simbalin became part of Malaysia. Warm climate, as it's pretty close to the equator, a tropical rainforest environment. So the trust trying to paint a picture of where this place is. Mm-hmm. Now, fake beardy guy talks about the flora and the fauna and the area and goes into the people. The people there are Muslim, but the narrator uses the antiquated spelling of Muslim, mm-hmm. M-O-S-L-E-M, And he just raves about their kindness and their generosity. And he says they didn't mind that he was there to convert convert people just as long as he and his other missionaries weren't there to interrupt anything. And in fact, they were there to build some medical care facilities, a clinic and a library with some books and movies of all types, not just Christian propaganda. The people see that they're getting a hospital out of it. And so they're cool with them being there. They'll listen, but they don't necessarily convert. As long as you don't interfere with our stuff, it's all good. Everything was going fine until he was told that they wanted to set up another clinic inland. And he was going to go up alone to get things set up with only a few of the locals and an interpreter. Now, he spoke the local language, but inland there were a people that spoke the old language. And they called themselves the Chichaos. He said that they're small people, Asian with a bit of African mixed in. They seemed harmless, Fake Beer says. But then he shudders a bit. Now, he said that the Chichaos are friendly at first, like really friendly, always smiling and laughing. But at times he felt like maybe they were laughing at him. And it seems that other local people stay away from the Chichaos. They named a small toxic snail after the Chichaos, the Chichao snail. That gives you an idea of what the locals think of them. I truly believe they must be the nastiest people who ever lived, he says. You know, they're kind of like Arthur Mack and baddies, these terrible small people out in the wilderness. Yes. Now, while up scouting for a place to set up this new clinic, one of his men in his party disappears. Once that guy's gone, the others just take off, too afraid of the Chichaos. He assumes that's why they ran off. The first missing man showed up a week later, but he was all messed up. He couldn't speak and he was really sick. And it seems the Chichaos grew something inside of him. Grew something inside of him. I'm not sure I need to enumerate all the ways in which that is a terrible thing to hear. (laughs) 
Yes. Now, before the narrator can ask him what the heck he means by that, a dude screams on the plane, and this freaks the narrator and fake beard out almost into a panic. They find out quickly it was some dude who fell asleep with a cigarette, a lit cigarette, and burned himself. Yeah, if this story were modern, you know, written now, I'd be like, he just threw that detail in to remind you it's the 70s. Give me a break. <laughs> but yes, people smoked on planes and they did probably fell asleep burning themselves. Now, the incident derails the conversation and they talk about boring stuff. Fakebeard says he's off to Florida, just outside of Miami, and the narrator, his sister, lives outside of Miami, and he says, hey, you should look up my sister. And then he writes down her name and address for him and then immediately regrets doing it. Yeah. <laughs> because he's like, this guy is probably nuts. And I just gave him my sister's information. Why did I do that? Yeah. And if this dude, I mean, he might take it as some kind of code. It's literally a sister, but he might go, oh, right, your sister. Yeah, I'll look her up. Thanks. You oh. might think he's trafficking somebody or something. Oh, geez. <laughs> Fortunately, at that moment, Fakebeard doesn't seem all that interested in his sister. No. We now find out Fakebeard's real name is Ambrose Mortimer. What a great name. Yeah, it is. The narrator is able to swing the conversation back to the cool stuff and ask Mortimer why he thinks he's being followed. And he says, well, at the airport in New Delhi and at Heathrow, I heard someone singing one of the Chichao songs, a song that might have been part of some ritual. You know, he's not sure. And he thinks it was a farming song to make things grow. Oh, man, he is definitely being followed. That is not good. <laughs> Something's growing in him. Now, Mortimer says he doesn't have a direct flight, so he's going to have to get off the plane in New York. And after they land, they say their goodbyes. Mortimer says, oh, be sure to look up your sister. Oh, <laughs> the narrator's, ah, no, bullet not dodged. Why did I do that? So later, the narrator is looking for something for his nephew in a gift shop when he sees Mortimer looking at some magazines and then some records. The narrator doesn't really want to talk to him again, so he doesn't approach him. But then he sees something kind of odd. At last, with a shrug of his huge shoulders... He began flipping through the albums in the bin, snapping each one forward in an impatient staccato. Soon, the assortment scanned. He moved to the bin on the left and started on that. Suddenly, he gave a little cry, and I saw him shrink back. He stood immobile for a moment, staring down at something in the bin. Then he whirled and walked quickly from the store, pushing past a family about to enter. Late for his plane, I said to the astonished salesgirl and strolled over to the albums. One of them lay face up in the pile, a jazz record featuring John Coltrane on saxophone. Confused, I turned to look for my erstwhile companion, but he had vanished in the crowd hurrying past the doorway. Something about the album had apparently set him off. I studied it more carefully. Coltrane stood silhouetted against a tropical sunset, his features obscured, head tilted back, saxophone blaring silently beneath the crimson sky. The pose was dramatic but trite, and I could see in it no special significance. It looked like any other black man with a horn. That's a good place to stop. We hear Ooh. the title of the story. Mm -hmm. Although this isn't really the black man with a horn the title is referring to. But I guess Coltrane's pose was enough to remind Mortimer of something horrible. And, you know, right there, it's a riff on how Lovecraft's real-life bigotry drives the xenophobia in his work, the mm -hmm. horror of the tainted bloodline, or the other penetrating the civilized world. Fear of it, but attraction to it. Mm -hmm. 
Both of these guys are dumb for not buying that album because Pol- Coltrane did make a bunch of good records. <laughs> what do you think about the story so far at this point? I yeah, I'm, I'm digging it. It's just like you said, he's a really good writer. Just forget all the Lovecraft stuff. So as a writer, he's great. And then you get all the cool monsters and creepy stuff and cults and, and all that. So yeah, I'm liking it. I always feel a little uncomfortable with the evil race. You know, yeah. that whole idea. Like there's just some a group of people, they're all evil no matter what. You know, so just that idea always kind of bugged me but then again i think that's what this is about and this is an older character in a literary sense it ties into the theme of what's going on yeah i I mean he's just taking some of these things on head on which i admire quite a Mm -hmm. bit not hiding it or or shuffling it to the side the the fact that it opens with that quote that's ambiguously about lovecraft taking a picture of a black man (laughs) Uh, we're going to talk about this, yep. and, and I think that's really cool. Well, we're going to talk about it more next week when we come back to the story. For now, I would like to thank, first, our reader today, Eric Peabody. Thank you so much for reading. Please check out Eric's reading of the events at Porth Farm. You can find it now at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel. You can also find it by searching Horror Hill on your favorite podcast platform. And, of course, we have linked out to those readings. There's two of them. In the show notes, two parts to the events at Porth Farm, also by Ted Klein. If you like this, you'll like that. Please go tune in. And I also want to thank some of our stakers for making these free shows possible. Yes, I want to thank Crypto Cartographer. I want to thank Alistair Brooks. The twins. Thank you, guys. I want to thank Andy Boss Coffee Garcia. Angelina Brown. Thank you. Evan, thank you so much. Eric Espalone, MD. Thank you. And finally, Ben A. Thank you for making these shows possible, that we can share it with the unwashed masses, the gen pop that you might encounter on a plane or at jury duty, those horrific others and their horrific habits. We want all of them to hear our show. So thank you for making this free show possible. We will be back next week exclusively for patrons with Black Man with a Horn, part two. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. <laughs> <laughs>